Good morning on one of the most beautiful seasons of the year, Balloon Fiesta. It's just great to wake up to cool temperatures and see those things cruising around. It's cool. 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, we continue where we left off last week. Every Saturday, I pray for the entertainment industry because it's one of the big pillars in our culture of communication. It was interesting that the last couple of weeks I was asked to go down to Puerto Rico in between Sundays, fly there and back, fly there and back, to take part in a film that's being done down there. And uh, I went the first week to sort of supervise the script on a theological level, and then the second week to do a small part in this movie. But what was interesting is working with some of these actors, producers, and directors. And the script is all laid out, and contracts are signed, and actors are there to say the parts that they have already read. But we had a couple of interesting run-ins with some actors not wanting to read the lines, read the script. I don't agree with this. I don't want to say this. I don't want to ask the question. And as I was watching one of these actors go back and forth with the producer, I thought, boy, that's exactly what a lot of people do when it comes to God's script. He has given us His Word, His revelation, the script for His love, His plan, how to have a relationship with Him. And we come along and want to rewrite the script, reinterpret the script, reinvent it, come up with our own role, our own part. But God is the producer. I mean, He created the world. I guess He can do whatever He wants and say whatever He wants. We've been looking at the last week and this week at the script of God's love. In fact, that's what it's called, the scripture or the graphe, the graph, the handwritten revelation of God in His Word. But we have come to a place in our culture where the Bible doesn't hold the esteem that it once did. You know, you know, or at least you've heard, that at one time this book was mandatory in public schools. That's what was taught, was the Bible. That was a long time ago, I realize. But now the Bible is simply a thing you put your hand on in a courtroom and swear to tell the whole truth. That's where it's gone. Sometime back on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Howard Stern was the guest, and he uh, had just written his book, and, you know, he makes some pretty shocking boasts. He said, you know, Jay, my book is the fastest-selling book in all of the history of literature. Of course, it was a lie, which is not unbecoming of Howard Stern. Then Stern held up a Bible, and he said, the Gideon Society is now going to start putting my book in hotel rooms instead of the Bible. In a rare display of courage, Jay Leno grabbed the Bible out of his hands and rebuked him for blaspheming God's Word. I don't know that that speaks to Jay Leno as much as his ratings would be in trouble, perhaps. But why should we believe the Bible? Why is it trustworthy? Is it rational? After such a long time. Here we are now in the third millennium entering into it since Christ and we're still holding on to this old book. Some of us even carry it around during the day. 
Some of us have even memorized certain parts of it and we even quote it to people. How rational is that? Now, these are questions that I know you are asked if you live at all in the real world. Unless you bury your head in the sand all day long, the secular world challenges your belief, and I wonder how well-equipped you are to answer them. It would really behoove you to learn some of the answers to the challenges. There was a Russian dictionary that defined the Bible by saying, it is a collection of fantastic legends Without scientific support, it is full of dark hints, historical mistakes, and contradictions, and it serves as a factor for gaining power and subjugating unknowing nations. Well, that's quite a challenge. Now, how would we answer that? Well, some of us would put our head in the sand, close our eyes, and I just hope it goes away. Take the bad people away. Others of us may be very stubbornly religious and about the best we could do is something like, well, I have my belief and you have yours, so there. Ooh, now that's profound. Or we could actually do a little investigation and come up with and articulate a good defense. Come up with the answers. Last week we began looking at the Bible. This is a series, after all, on the foundations of our faith. And we begin with the Bible because in the rest of the series, we always will point to it. And so we looked at its designation last week. It is called Scripture, the handwriting of God through human instruments. We discovered that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. We discussed how the canon of books, the list of books, came into our Bible. Then we looked at its inspiration. Unlike any other book, it is inspired by God, and we discovered that doesn't mean natural inspiration on the level of a Michelangelo or a Picasso painting. It doesn't refer to concept inspiration, where God just gave concepts, but He actually gave the words through the instruments of human beings. Now today we want to sort of continue that thought to the authentication. How do we know? What do we say to people who challenge the Bible? And they say, no, wait a minute. You have your book, but there's lots of books out there. There's lots of religions out there. They all have their own scripture, their book. Why is yours better than theirs? Several years ago, I came into the office one evening and somebody told me that Jesus was in my office. I said, what, is this a joke? He said, no, this guy says he's Jesus Christ and he wants to see you. I thought, well, great. I've always wanted to meet Jesus face to face. This will be cool. So I walk in my office. The guy stood up. Hi, I'm Jesus. Straight face. Oh, you are. Yes, I am the second coming. Hmm. So I said, uh, where were you born? Pennsylvania. So, you know, immediately a red flag goes up. I read the book. Bethlehem, right? Not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I said, so you're, you're Jesus. Yep, I am the second coming of Christ. So I'm thinking, well, I mean, I don't know why he's in Albuquerque, but I'm, okay. So I said, uh, now how do I know that? 
He said, because of the third testament. The what? I've heard of the old and the new testament. You're telling me there's a third? Oh yes, it's the third testament. So I said, okay, who authored that book? He goes, I did. So I thought, okay, the easiest thing in the world is to authenticate your own writing. This is inspired because I said so. Now that's what the Bible is often accused of being, self-authenticating. The Bible says, thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came unto. So people ask, that's what the Bible says about itself. How do you authenticate its claims? The Bible is authenticated, first of all, internally. Let's start from that point, internally. In other words, this isn't just one book. There are 66 separate books written by 40 authors over a 1,500-year period with three different languages, three different continents, and yet, with such diversity, there is a unity of message. Different styles of writings, different kinds of people. Politicians help write the Bible, which automatically, to some, is suspect. King David, King Solomon, Daniel was a prime minister. Shepherds helped write the Bible. Now, shepherds weren't college grads. These are guys out in the fields. David was a shepherd before he became a king. The prophet Amos from Tekoa was a shepherd or a sheep herder. Amos 1.1 tells us. So we would think, shepherds wrote the Bible? I mean, maybe they would misspell words or not finish sentences or their documents would smell like sheep. How reliable is that? Converted religious leaders added to the script. Paul the Apostle, once a Jewish Pharisee, now a converted born-again Christian. We would think, boy, he's going to use his platform with an angle. He's going to try to ditz his past religion, which he doesn't do. Fishermen helped write the Bible. Oh, now we're really getting down there, man. Fishermen from the Sea of Galilee? What's the thing going to read like a field and stream magazine or something? It's the most unlikely group to author the most revered book in human history, the best-selling book in human history that claims to reveal the mind of God. And by the way, it wasn't 40 guys at the same time who knew each other and got together in a room, shook hands and said, now let's strategize how we're going to craft a unified text. They come from different periods of time. Daniel wrote in a Babylonian palace around 540 B.C. Jeremiah in a dungeon 600 B.C. Joshua wrote while he was fighting battles in 1390 B.C. Moses wrote in 14-something B.C. in the wilderness. Paul wrote from a dungeon, a prison in Rome in the 60s A.D. Different time periods, different settings, different authors. At times of joy, during times of depression. Some of it was historical narrative, some of it was poetry, some of it was proverbs, songs, prophecy. And here's the question. What kind of a God would author a book of such diversity? Here's the answer, I believe. A God who wanted to communicate to all people of all times. 
The fact that he is rich, poor, highly educated, highly uneducated, the uh, very linear technical thinker, the artistic, means that God wants to communicate to everyone. So whether you are artistic or technical, have a long attention span or short, are very educated, or you didn't get a GED, there's something in this book that will speak to your heart. That's one of the fascinating things about the Bible is that it's shallow enough that a babe can enjoy it, deep enough a theologian could drown in it, and never reach the depth of its profoundness. Then, the Bible, with all of these different backgrounds and people and languages, speak about the most controversial subjects in the world, like the origin and destiny of man, evil in the world, You might want to try this as an experiment. Or tell your agnostic friends who say, the Bible really isn't trustworthy. Say, okay, tell you what, get ten people from your neighborhood, let alone across the world, your neighborhood, same background, same education, same culture, same language, and write an essay paper on the meaning of life and see if you all agree. They won't agree. Or take... 25 medical books written in the last thousand years and treat a patient with the information therein. That means you're going to get texts from the headhunters in Africa, Native American medicine, modern medicine, and you're going to treat somebody's disease based on the contents of those pages. You will create a Frankenstein if you try to do that. There is no cohesion or agreement over that period of time and culture. So the Bible is unique on an internal basis that you have such diversity, yet such unity on the subjects that are written about. Compare that with any other Bible, any other text, any other sacred literature. For instance, the Book of Mormon, first published in 1825, by the year 1898, had already gone under 2,038 corrections. And by 1959 the Book of Mormon had within it over 3,000 changes in grammar and doctrine. So my question would be, if God is the author, why did he make so many mistakes? That's where you'll find the difference between other literature and the Bible. Number two, it is authenticated historically. It has survived against all odds, against several factors that would threaten to destroy it. Like weather. Why didn't weather destroy that? I mean, if you look at the, the uh, writings of the Babylonian Empire, all written on clay tablets, weather has destroyed them. We have fragments here and there because the material was vulnerable. The Bible was placed on something that would last, papyrus, vellum, before paper was invented, that material that we, we can still find from hundreds of years before Christ in caves by the Dead Sea. Nations threatened to destroy the Bible. You probably know about the Roman Empire's persecution against the early church, how that from the 2nd to the 4th century, there was such an all-out desire to destroy Christianity from the Roman Empire that seven million graves in 900 miles of catacombs still visible in Rome today attest to that horrible time of persecution. 
Caesar Nero started it in 64 AD. He decided to take Christians alive, tie them on poles, pour hot pitch over them, and use them as living torches till they burned to death in his garden to light up his parties of night. Then blame the Christians for the fires in Rome. And that fomented a series of persecutions against the church so that by the year 303 AD, Diocletian, the Roman emperor, said anybody caught with a copy of the Bible will be killed. Scriptures were burned. Churches were destroyed. But the Bible survived. I've always smiled when I read the account of Voltaire, who in the 1700s, this French atheist, said, I predict within 25 years there will be no Bibles on the earth and Christianity will have disappeared. I smile because within 40 years of that prediction, his home was used by the Bible Society to distribute the Bible through Europe. I love God's sense of humor. The Bible wasn't destroyed by weather. The Bible wasn't destroyed by persecution. And the Bible wasn't destroyed by time. You know, just two to 3,000 years of time. Most documents don't survive that. One scholar said that if you took all of the other works of antiquity penned in the A.D. 50s and 60s, you could fit them all between two bookends spaced one foot apart. All of other literature, you have about that much of it, penned in the 50s and 60s. But if you look at the New Testament, you find something interesting. An abundance of manuscripts exist, 5,750. If you take all the other fragments of the New Testament, you have about 24,000 plus fragments and documents, scrolls from that time. What's interesting is that the earliest copy that we have of the Bible was penned 30 years after its original. That's the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John dates to A.D. 120, 30 years after John originally penned it. I'm bringing that up because, you know, everybody wants to knock the Bible. The Bible is invalid. How can you trust that old book penned by people? But nobody ditzes the other ancient documents. The writings of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, with much less credible evidence. You know that the earliest copy we have of the complete work of of the Odyssey by Homer was written 2,200 years after its original. I think 30 years, 5,000 manuscripts. 2,200 years. Copies of works by Plato and Aristotle number about 5 or 7 or 10, written about 1,000 or 1,500 years after its original. But nobody ditzes those documents, but they do the Bible. But the question would be then, how do we know the Bible is an accurate representation of the original? I mean, after all, you did mention copies, Skip, so somebody copied these documents. So all we have today aren't originals, but copies of the originals. How do we know they didn't get distracted? How do we know they all didn't have ADD when they copied these things? had the radio on or something else is going on and they wrote the wrong words down. That only betrays an ignorance of the level of integrity of the ancient scribes. 
couple thousand years ago in the Jewish religion, if you, if you wanted to become a scribe, you know how you read about them in the New Testament, the scribes and the Pharisees? To become a scribe was a demanding and lofty profession. It, it took an, an entire lifetime of commitment. Training began at age 14, did not end till age 40. And once you completed your training, there you were in the scriptorium. You were going to copy the master scroll onto this copy. The material had to be carefully prepared. The ink had to be specially mixed and selected. 37 letters per line were required. Every line was inspected and then reconfirmed. Every letter, the space between the letters, the number of letters, the number of lines per page, all checked and rechecked. And the middle letter of the page was checked against the middle letter of the master scroll. If they didn't match up in any of these criteria, the copy, the entire scroll was burned. And the scribe would start from scratch, hand copying it. And all you have to do is take the oldest manuscript we have before the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, co- and compare them with the Dead Sea Scroll documents, which represents hundreds of years in a time gap, and look at the copies, and you find that there is no difference. An incredible consistency of accuracy. So the Bible is authenticated internally, historically, Third, archaeologically. I don't know what you know about the archaeology of the Bible, but I've discovered that anybody who ever tried to attack the Bible on archaeological grounds all failed, and some were even converted to Christianity. I read the story of Sir William Ramsey, a British archaeologist, skeptic, who said that Luke was a fraud and didn't write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts was inaccurate. He spent 30 years of his life trying to disprove that, even traveling to Greece and Asia Minor to dig. So he dug, looking at the names of the places that Luke wrote about and discovered not only was Luke accurate, but he shocked the academic world when Sir William Ramsey said Luke is one of the most accurate and best historians of all time. Then shortly after, he gave his life to Christ, converted to Christianity. Over in Jerusalem, there's a pool. It's a hole in the ground is what it is now. Called the Pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5 says this pool had five porches and there was the moving of the water and people would lay sick people in it waiting for that angel to stir up the waters. That was the tradition. The only problem was is it was only mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't mentioned in Roman literature. There was no record of it. And so scientists, skeptics, archaeologists said, it's a fraud. There is no pool of Bethesda. Aha! They started digging around. And they found the pool of Bethesda exactly as John described it, having five porches. They went, oh, Okay, well, we got another one. That Punches Pilate guy, he never existed. There's no record except in the Bible, and you can't trust the Bible because there's only 5,750 manuscripts, more than any other, but we can't trust that. We don't find it in Roman literature. There is no Punches Pilate. 
So they started digging around the ancient town of Caesarea by the sea, and they found this tablet. It's in the museum. You can go over to Israel sometime when it's safe. Er. I don't know if it's ever safe, but next time it's a little safer than it is this week. And look at that inscription. It says, In the years in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea. And the skeptics went, Oh. Well, there's some others, you know. The Bible mentions the Hittite civilization 40 different times. We have no ancient records of the Hittites, except in the Bible. And they started digging around the Middle East. And one esteemed archaeologist found all sorts of evidence and scrolls of the Hittite civilization. And they said, oh. And this happens so many times, they don't say it anymore. The noted Dr. J.O. Kinnaman said, of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts found by archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, one phrase, one clause, one sentence of the Bible. Rather, they always confirm and verify the facts of the biblical record. Here's a cool story I just discovered. In the 1950s, there was an Israeli businessman by the name of Axiel Fetterman who was reading his Bible. He was reading Genesis. And he was reading the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He started thinking about what he was reading. He read how in Genesis it says, And lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. He started pouring over that. That's smoke going up like the smoke of a furnace. So he thought, well, if there's smoke from the fire, if there's a fire that existed and it's burning, that must mean there's underground gas. If there's underground gas, it must mean there's oil. In 1953, based on that passage, the first oil derrick was put down by Sodom and Gomorrah in Israel. Then the Bible can be authenticated prophetically. And this is what the Bible uses to authenticate itself. This is what God points to. When God gives out his calling card, so to speak, he says, hey, check what I can do out. I can predict things in advance before they happen, and no other gods can pull that off. In Isaiah 41, God challenges the other gods by saying, can your idols make such claims as these? Let them try to tell us what has happened long ago or what the future holds. If you are gods then tell us what will occur in the days ahead. It's funny to me to watch all of the press that people like Miss Cleo have gotten, or Jean Dixon, who made so many false prophecies. She's a prophetess. Everybody wants to know the future. God says, I can handle that. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you about things before they happen in such detail so that when they happen, because I have told you about them in advance, you'll know that I'm the true God. No other ancient book can do this. The Koran can't do it. The Bhagavad Gita of the, of the Hindus can't do that. The Upanishads, none of these documents can come close. How impressive is prophecy? Pretty impressive. I'll give you an example. Isaiah chapter 44, you may want to just jot that down and look at it sometime on your own. In that one chapter alone, several predictions were made. Number one, 
the fall of the city of Jerusalem. Number two, the destruction of the Jewish temple. By the way, when that was penned, Jerusalem was a strong city. There were no enemies impending. The temple was a landmark, geographical landmark. I'm sure people looked at that and said, I don't get it. What do you mean it's going to be destroyed and the temple will be flattened? Something else in Isaiah 44. It predicts that a guy by the name of Cyrus would give an edict to rebuild the temple. You know what's amazing about that? That prophecy was given 160 years before Cyrus was ever born. Before his mom and dad ever thought, what a cute baby, what should we call him? God said, Cyrus. 160 years before he was born, it was penned. You know what the odds of Isaiah 44, those elements collectively being fulfilled are? 1 in 10 to the 14th power. Let's say I stood before you this morning and I said, I can predict the winning lottery number. You'd say, oh, really? Try it. Okay, so I give you a bunch of numbers and it comes to pass. The odds of me doing that are 1 in 10 million. 1 in 10 to the 7th power. If I did it two times in a row, you know, imagine that. You'd be really impressed if I could say, now, I did that. That was cool. I'm going to do it again. If I could do it two successful times, every number, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 14th power, or roughly the odds of Isaiah 44, those elements being fulfilled. This is such an amazing thing that Dr. Peter Stoner, the chair of mathematics at Westmont College, wrote a book about this called Science Speaks. I've recommended it before. Analyzed 48 predictions written about the Messiah 250 years before he was born. And he said, using his mathematical probabilities, we find the chance that any one man in history could fulfill all 48 prophecies to be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. I want you to realize how staggering this is. Let's say you could take, and I've given you this illustration before as well, but now memorize it. If you could take the entire state of Texas and fill it two feet thick, filled with silver dollars, if you pre-select one silver dollar, place it somewhere in the sovereign nation of Texas, Have a guy blindfolded walk through the entire state of Texas and find the right silver dollar that you've picked. The odds of him doing that would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. If you took the United States of America and filled it two feet thick of silver dollars, pre-marked one, had a blindfolded man find the one you pre-selected, his odds would be 1 in 10 to the 18th power. Take the continent of Africa and Asia, two feet thick of silver dollars, pre-select one, have somebody blindfolded find it, one in ten to the 19th power. According to Stoner, the odds of one man fulfilling 48 prophecies that would be completely out of his control, like where he was to be born, what lineage he would be from, what house he would be from, etc., the odds would be one in ten to the 157th power. In other words, in a hundred billion years, there's not enough time for those chance factors to come to fruition in one person without God's help. Finally, the Bible is authenticated messianically. And for Christians, this is where the argument should end. Really. Why should I believe the Bible? 
Because Jesus said so. Now, if you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to follow Jesus, I contend you can't take him very seriously if you don't take the Bible seriously. You know why? Because the Savior, you and I say we follow, quoted the Old Testament 64 times right around there. And each time he, he pointed out or he rested upon that it was the Word of God when he referred to it. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, To whom the Word of God came, and the Scriptures cannot be broken. Did you hear that? According to Jesus Christ, the Bible, the Scripture, isn't just a literature class in college. Jesus said it can't be broken. It can't be broken. Because it's God-breathed. It's inspired. Now, if you can't, if you can't believe Jesus on this issue, why could you believe him on any other issue? Well, I believe the part about believing in him and you'll be saved. I just don't believe all the other stuff he said. Who gave you the right to choose? Jesus in Matthew 19 affirmed that God created man from nothing and placed him in the Garden of Eden. In Matthew 24, Jesus affirmed there was a literal flood that covered the entire earth as a judgment upon the world. He spoke of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a fact. He spoke about manna coming down from heaven as a fact. In Luke chapter 11, he even affirmed Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. If you don't think Jesus is right on those issues, you've got bigger problems. Because either A, he was ignorant, just well-meaning but ignorant to the fact that those really weren't true. Everybody now knows they weren't true. Or he did know they weren't true and he was simply accommodating the ignorance of these Palestinian people, which makes him a liar. And I don't want to follow a liar. So you can't take Christ seriously until you take the Bible seriously as being inspired by God. So the Bible is authenticated for those reasons. Now, because all of that's true, we have the application now. Look at our text. Verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and because of that, it is profitable. You might want to add the word sufficient. The original Greek word could mean that as well. Sufficient for doctrine, for reproof for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can you name any other book in history that can come close to that? If it is indeed, and it is, the God-breathed, written revelation that is inerrant, then it would make sense that it would be profitable for correction, reproof, instruction in righteousness, equipping us. A medical book can't do that for you. I mean, it's good. You'll learn a lot. You get a degree and help people, but it'll give you information, not transformation. A law book can't do that. The writings of Oprah can't do that, or Dr. Phil can't do that, or Deepak Chopra can't do that. But the Bible can. Martin Luther said of the Bible, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Look back at verse 15. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. That's the first application. If you read the Koran, 
if you read the Book of Mormon, if you read the Upanishads or any other sacred book, you won't be saved. Only the Bible makes you wise for salvation because the Bible points to the central hero, which is who? Jesus. That's what Jesus said. He said to the Pharisees, You search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of Me. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, I'm the theme of the whole book. It'll make you wise to salvation. And second, as we read here, it'll make you well-equipped. It'll instruct you. It'll rebuke you. Listen to the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do right. You know, this is why a lot of people don't like to hear Bible study or Bible teachings or sermon based on the Bible because they read it and they go, ooh, that's getting a little personal. God's messing with me now. The Bible often will comfort the afflicted. But I've found often the Bible will also afflict the comfortable. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable, a little too religiously comfortable. But God's Word can penetrate and pierce, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, and get to that spot. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had God, after you, you, you're reading a portion of Scripture, really grab your heart because of that? There's a factory that shut down because its, its machine busted. And the mechanics couldn't fix the machine to get things back into production. So they called in an expert from the outside who started studying the machine, took out a little hammer, hit it at a certain area, and the machine started working miraculously, you know. So he gave a bill for $1,000 to the owner. The owner said, $1,000? This is highway robbery. I want an itemized bill. The man said, okay, here's the itemized bill. $1 for hitting with a hammer. $999 for knowing precisely where. <laughs> I'll tell you honestly, I've read the Bible through a number of times. And I'll open it up and lo and behold, the Holy Spirit will take something and take his little hammer and go, ooh, ouch. Correction, reproof, rebuke, instruction and in righteousness. That is, if you allow him to. You know, there's a huge tune-out factor among churchgoers. Our minds can immediately read a text or hear something and we go, heard it before. <laughs> oh, so it's changed your life then for good, right? Because that's where the value of Bible study comes in. Not its authentication, not its history, not its archaeology, not its great ability to stand the test of time as much as its ability to change a life. Has the message of the Bible changed your life? If not, you are mildly religious. You are inoculated with religion and you are immune from the real thing. So the truth comes in its greatest power when the application comes. I want to close with this. There was an agnostic American professor who visited the Fiji Islands. He went into a tribe that had been affected by missionaries. 
He looked around and he said to the chief, You are a great leader and a wise man, but I am very sorry that you've been duped by American Western missionaries who brought you the Bible and started this church. And everybody knows now, O chief, that the Bible was just written by men and that this threadbare story of a guy from heaven dying on a cross is just nonsense. And I'm sorry that you weren't smart enough to pick up on that. The old chief smiled, and he pointed to a rock. And he said, you see that rock? On that rock, we used to smash the heads of our victims. The professor was very quiet. (laughs) And he said, next to it is a furnace. Can you see that, professor? In that furnace, once we smashed our victims' heads, we would roast them to eat them. Were it not for that gospel that those God-loving missionaries brought into our culture and changed us from cannibals into Christians, you'd be supper by now. (laughs) That professor was very quiet. And I'm sure very grateful that the threadbare gospel message changed a culture from cannibals into Christians at that moment. Heavenly Father... We are grateful that the Spirit of God, through weak, sometimes uneducated, sometimes highly educated, sometimes artistic, sometimes technical, sometimes written by politicians, sometimes by shepherds, has preserved the Word, the truth, throughout generations so that it is as relevant today in principles that it brings forth as it was back then. Lord, I pray that not only would we believe that, but that we would be able to tell that to people. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen.